All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started tonight. Um, still, uh, before we came here, I was getting a little little tired, but uh, so I might cut it a little bit shorter than normal, but uh, I, hopefully that uh, won't upset anybody too bad. But um, um, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Uh, we'll get uh, into, uh, again, talking about this uh, biblical change process and and uh, what the Lord has to point out. We're going to talk a little bit about forgiveness. We're going to talk a, a bit about that word reconciliation that we keep mentioning and start uh, moving into some of those corrective actions uh, and specifically talking about uh, something called conformity. And uh, But let's go ahead and get uh, started tonight, and uh, we'll get going. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you again for the time that we have this evening. I thank you again, Lord, for those that are here. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that we're all ready to receive, ready to listen, ready to heed your word. That, uh, Lord, we would just have a very, very strong desire uh, in our hearts, Lord, to just um, take these things and use them in our life to give you glory, honor, and praise. Thank you again, Lord, for what you've guided us through already. And I pray your Holy Spirit will just continue to guide us tonight. And I ask and I pray all of this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, very briefly, I talked a little bit about forgiveness um, uh, already in the form of repentance. And then obviously when we're starting to talk about confession, uh, some of the purpose behind it. Uh, forgiveness is, uh, uh, is, if you will, one of those uh, dual-edged uh, principles that works both for the individual asking for forgiveness and the person giving forgiveness. Um, you know, obviously it's, uh, it's an act of giving. Uh, God says very clearly, Jesus Christ said, and Paul quoted, it is better to give than to receive. Um, and uh, that's a very interesting quote because you don't actually see it showing up in the gospels, but Paul quotes it as Christ saying it, which is, which is really kind of cool. Uh, but, uh, one of the things that we understand about forgiveness is it is something that you are actually giving away. It's something of yourself. So when God asks us to forgive, it, it, it is something that you are sacrificing. It is something that you are offering. Uh, it is something that is, uh, uh um, and can be very personal in a person's life. Uh, forgiveness cannot be uh, taken, uh, a, a, a for granted. And many times people do, uh, they, they, they will just kind of take it for granted and not realize, uh, the great importance behind it. I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we read, uh, these two passages last week. I want to just touch on them again briefly in Matthew chapter 18 and in verse 21, where it says, then Peter came to him, uh, talking to Jesus Christ, obviously, and said, Lord, how oft shall uh, my brother sin against me and I forgive him till seven times? You know, again, he's, he's asking about uh, a, a limitation. Uh, you know, wins, wins enough enough. And, uh, you know, Peter, Peter is kind of, if you will, going for a little bit of a black and white, uh, you know, uh, you know, ink and paper type situation. Uh, and Jesus Christ makes a, a, a statement that is very broad. I don't want to say vague, but it is, it, it, it's, it's broad in its nature and is also very specific in what we focus on. It's not the matter of number of times that's important. 
It's the fact that we continue to offer it. It's that we continue to give it. That's the principle. Because his response in verse 22 is, Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. And he says, you know, if you're going to sit there and count 490 times and keep a journal behind it, obviously there's something wrong with your heart. Uh, there, there, there's a serious issue. If you're, if you're keeping track and you're keeping score, look, we're not playing a football game. We're not playing a basketball game. Uh, some people think they're playing a soccer game where it's like, you know, one point and, uh, and the game's over type situation. You know, one person defends them one time in any one way, shape or form, and it's all over with, but the crime. But God's making it very clear here. Uh, it, it, it's, it's an amount that, you know, when we sit there and think about it, it is quite significant. It is quite significant. And, and, and again, um, it, it's it, it's an issue of a one person coming and doing it repeatedly. One person doing it repeatedly. Um, and, and he makes makes it clear here where, where Peter's asking you, like, so I should forgive him, but there's a limit to it. And God's saying, no, there's not a limit to it. There isn't a limit to it. Let's go over to the, uh, another parallel passage that we already read over there in Luke chapter 17. In Luke chapter 17, there's that other passage in verse... Uh, um, uh, verse, uh, three, just to, to start with, he says, take heed to yourselves. Uh, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. It's just kind of a blanket statement. No caveat. No, no ho- fiery hoops to jump through. None of that nature. But here he is saying, I repent. And he's repenting in front of you. What does he say? And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. So here's a situation where the corrective process has come. The rebuke is there. The reproof is there. The conviction is there. He comes, he confesses, and now he's seeking the reconciliations part. He's repenting at this stage, and he's seeking some restoration. And and God says, continue to offer it. Continue to offer it. But what if he does the same thing? Continue to offer it. Continue to offer it. The other day, I was getting ready for for, uh, Sunday morning, and I'm reading through um, uh, one of the minor prophets again, and I'm just reading over and over and over again. And, and if you read the minor prophets in succession, you're going to find it is really repetitious. It's like Israel sinned and 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 sinned. And you're just like, oh, good grief. But we understand the concept. God does forgive. And that is a good, heavy theme Throughout all of the prophets, God's forgiveness and mercy. And what we find here is, is God's making it clear, saying, we need to have the same thing. We know what First John 1, 9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is something that we as Christians need to take. If, if he's willing to forgive and somebody comes to us and says, I messed up, 
Maybe they don't say the apology the way you want them to say it. But maybe they are truly of a contrite heart and they're broken about it. Forgive them. Forgive them. You realize that's part of being faithful? That's part of being faithful. A person that does not forgive is not faithful. They can't be. Because God is faithful himself to forgive. If our standard of faithfulness is Christ, then we have an understanding of what that forgiveness looks like. We understand what that faithfulness looks like. Go over to uh, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and, 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 and obviously in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a situation where there's a guy involved in some immorality, and um, he tells him, you got to get that out. you got to turn that guy over to destruction of the flesh, you know, turn him over to the devil, get rid of it, you got to get it out, you can't have that in the church. Uh, somebody that's going around openly doing something like that, not a good thing, you got to get rid of it. Uh, they do that, uh, but the guy comes and, and when he realizes the error and the sin that he's committed, he, he, he comes back and he seeks forgiveness. But of course, the, the church at Corinth is like, what do we do now? <laughs> Forgive him. I mean, second Corinthians chapter two, what does he say here in, um, in verse seven? He says, so that contrariwise, ye ought to rather to forgive him. And comfort him, lest perhaps such one should be swallowed up with, uh, uh, should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. I mean, there's a clear example of what forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness involves comfort. Forgiveness involves love. Forgiveness involves confirmation. Forgiveness involves that that sorrow can go to another sin, and it is our responsibility as those who get forgiveness to come in there and edify and encourage and exhort and comfort and care. That's what real forgiveness looks like. But I say all of that to say this, that this is how forgiveness should be sought. Now, obviously, we're not talking about the person that's giving the forgiveness. Now, I'll say this, if you don't give forgiveness in a very uh, uh, willing fashion, then there's a good probability that you also need to change. But what I'm saying here is we're talking about the person that comes and seeks it. Well, why are they seeking forgiveness? Because that's part of the reconciliation process. It's part of the process. Because if you just go, oh man, I sinned. Man, I, 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 I shouldn't have uh, hit, hit, hit brother John with my car. I mean, that, you know, <laughs> you know, there he is laying in the middle of the parking lot and going, man, I, I really shouldn't have done that. Oh Lord, forgive me. And I drive off. And there he is. He's like, what? <laughs> you know, ambulance is called and they haul him off and, and he's in the hospital, and I hear he's in the hospital, and I go visit him, and I'm go, oh man, I'm so, and I'm sorry you're in the hospital. And he's like, I'm here because of you. Oh. Well, I hope you get better soon. 
He's going to be looking at me like I'm nuts. Because that's not a normal response. What I'm going to want to do is I'm going to want to make it right. I'm going to want to go to him and give him an opportunity to glorify God. What better way can we as Christians glorify God except we exemplify Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32? Tender, kind, forgiving one another. Those are things that we need to understand. That gives God a lot of glory. Why? Because the world doesn't give that very frequently. They don't give that very frequently. You know, when it comes to certain things, you know, it comes to adultery, uh, um, you know, there, there's the little cliche of once a cheater, always a cheater, right? That's the way people look at it. And they're like, well, if they've done it once before, then they're going to do it again. You know, better kick the person to the curb, right? Don't give them an opportunity. And there's no opportunity for God to get glory in it. At all. So when a person comes in and, and, and they are wanting that, that person is coming because they want to give God glory. They're wanting to see God be, 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 be praised with that. Because it takes a lot to give. And it is a lot to give. Forgiveness is, is it, I mean, it's big. It's big. It's not something that, 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 that's a small subject matter, especially when you start going through and seeing how much God talks about forgiveness of sins. And you also have to remember, that's why he died on the cross. You realize that when we start talking about salvation, that we're talking about salvation from the consequences of our sin, which is eternal death. The wages of sin is death. What are we saved from? We are saved from our sins. Well, what is the the salvation from the sins? Is he going to just automatically come down and stop you from sinning? No. Our body isn't redeemed. Big difference. But here's the issue. He saved you from that breach in a relationship. He saved you from eternal punishment. He saved you from being alienated from God. Those are things that that when we look at what salvation is truly about, and and you look at salvation and there's different, you know, uses of the word salvation. You go over to the book of uh, Exodus and you find salvation being used at the Red Sea, where he talks about, see the salvation of the Lord. When you see the salvation of the Lord, what were they going to see? Were they going to see Jesus Christ on the cross? And then raising again? No. Well, he was very specific. He says, you're not going to see these Egyptians anymore. Why? Because we're going to drown them. We're going to drown them. That's, I mean, that's, that's what he's talking about. So it was a physical salvation. But when we're talking about the salvation that God, that Jesus Christ brought upon the cross as saved from our sins, that punishment, and I will tell you this, it is the greatest thing to have that, pun- uh, that, that punishment paid for, taken care of. 
And that's why, again, you know, sometimes you get people, they focus too much on one word. It's like the, the Calvinists. They'll, they'll focus on uh, predestination or ordination and foreknowledge when it comes to, to salvation, not understanding. And they'll pull those one things out and then they'll make something out of it. I, 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 I'm sorry, but I, there's no better example of that than an evolutionist. Uh, I, which one was it? I think it was Piltdown Man. They came out and they were, they were like, look what we found. We found this tooth. This belonged to a human. It's a humanoid tooth. It's for, you know, look at it. And they created this whole guy and his whole species of, of human beings and subspecies and called him Piltdown Man and, you know, how he was, you know, fitting in there and all this stuff. I think it was Piltdown. It was one of them. They're Piltdown, Cro-Magnum, uh, Magna, whatever. I, I don't know. I don't I, I, Ask me if I care. <laughs> Anyways, they, they came up with this, and these, these guys, you know, they're holding up this tooth, and they create this whole thing behind it, and all of this stuff. I, and, and sometimes that's how I look at when 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 certain Christians pull certain words out, and they can pull it out, and they say, "See this, see this," and they make a big deal out of it without it being in context. You know what the context of that tooth was? It was from a pig. Yeah, they don't talk about that with, the, you know, you, you bring that up to evolutionists and they're just like, well, that was like one. No, that was not one time. You guys keep doing it. <laughs> Take a little bone and he's like, it's a little chicken bone and they're like, oh, this belonged to the giant velociraptor, you know, something of that nature. And then come to find out, no, it was just the guy there that was working had, you know, chicken for dinner. <laughs> he was on the rotisserie chicken diet. <laughs> It left its chicken bones there, whatever it is. But the end results that we see is, is when people take things out of context, it becomes difficult. And this is why it's very important to look at the entirety of the process. I say all of that to say this, that when we look at repentance and we look at the accepting of consequences and we look at the seeking of forgiveness, we're talking about some reconciliation. Go over to the book of Matthew. We already read this one. We, you know, again, this is a principle that we need to get to, to, to really get down. Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, and uh, uh, verse uh, twenty-three. He says, "Therefore, if uh, thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee." Leave thy gift there before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come again and offer thy gift. Why? Because here's the issue. If you do not have the reconciliation that you're supposed to have the way that God wants it, it will affect the way you worship him. It will affect you. You won't worship the same way. Songs won't have the same meaning. Prayer life will be shallow. You'll you, you'll you'll be harboring and, and cultivating a, a, a crop of bitterness. That when that thing brings forth its fruit, it's going to be ugly. Because bitterness is never a good thing, in any way, shape, or form. But what I'm pointing out here is is that the desire is is we know if we have committed an offense against somebody, that's what the thought is talking about. What do we do? It's our responsibility to go and reconcile. We got to make it right. Uh, I'm not checking Facebook. I'm just bringing up my definition here. So bear with me. Uh, you know, when we start talking about the, the, the definition of the word, 
uh, reconcile, it talks about restoring a union and a friendship that has been estranged. It's a relationship word. It's a relationship word. Interestingly enough, uh, there's a French word right in the middle of it, uh, which is uh, conciliate, uh, uh, or excuse me, conciliaire, um, which is uh, a French word to me that means to be friendly or to make friendly. The re again, uh, you know, is, 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 means that again, but it means to restore that friendship, to restore that union. Now, God talks a lot about union in the book of Ephesians. Talks a lot about it in the book of First Corinthians as well. Talks a lot about how we should be of the same mind throughout the rest of the Pauline epistles. And why is that? Because God, in his grace, in his work, put forth reconciliation between parties. That's what God desires. That's what God's looking for. So here he's saying, look, this is what you should be seeking. You shouldn't just go and assume the relationship is okay. No. You have a responsibility to make it right. You have a responsibility to make it right as part of the corrective process. If you don't do it, the other steps are going to be a lot, have a lot less meaning and maybe just meaningless. Because there is no restoration of what God has brought together. Take a look at a couple of verses. Go over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5 this is a passage that I often go to because it talks about our commission. And people talk about the Great Commission over there in Mark chapter 16. Well, that was given specifically to 11 guys. And when you read further down in the list of what the Great Commission includes, you find it talks about drinking poison and, you know, healing people and handling snakes and some other things. And you're like, eh. But go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature is a great application. We can take that. And you should. Every Christian should take that that seriously. Should take that seriously. But we know who it was specifically talking to. But Paul comes back and he begins to talk about their ministry that they have towards the, the Corinthians. And the ministry that we all have, one with another. And he puts it into this con- this category. Which again, lines up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which he says there in in verse 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, uh, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God does beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ came to basically be the Prince of Peace and say, enough with the fighting. 
the sin has caused us to be at enmity with God and has made us an enemy of him. He's demonstrated his love toward us, but while that sin exists, it creates a hostility. It creates, uh, uh, if you will, a war zone. Read Romans chapter 7. He outlines it. So what we find here is he's saying this ministry of reconciliation is something that we should be striving for. We should be telling people that they can be reconciled to a holy and righteous God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. They can have salvation from their sins. They can have forgiveness of sins. They can have a home in heaven, and they can have an eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's reconciliation. God's all about that reconciliation process. God's all about that reconciliation process. And I'll tell you this, when we, we take a look at it in, in, in light of the unbeliever, it makes a lot of sense. When we take a light, uh, take a look at it in the light of, of believers, it also makes a lot of sense. If God reconciled us to bring us all together, why in the world would we want sin to separate us? Because that's all sin does. I use the analogy a lot because I, I, I like the analogy. You know, sin frags lives. You throw a frag grenade into a room and it'll clear things out pretty quick. It makes a mess. Makes a lot of noise, a lot of smoke, a lot of people are hurt. There's a lot of damage that is done. And that's what happens with sin. So there's a lot that has to be done to reconcile. There's a lot to, to, to be reconciled. Let's go over to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. And, and, and I bring this up because it's important that we understand that God wants us to be together. God does not want believers to have ought against each other. He does not want us committing offenses. He does not want us holding bitterness. He does not want us withholding forgiveness. He does not want us committing sin one towards another. You know, some people did jump on that verse. Well, you know, suffer yourself to be defrauded. Okay, I get that. But how about the one that committed the fraud? Every single year I've got to go through this fraud, waste, and abuse for the, the Medicare stuff. Oh, my word, you want to talk about mind-numbing. You're sitting there and you're learning about the fines and stuff like this and how one instance of fraud and abuse within the Medicaid or Medicare system, good grief, $25,000 fine to start. To start. And depending on whether it was fraud, waste, and abuse, it can mean if it was done deliberately, and that's what fraud is, deceitfulness, you can spend prison time like anywhere from 5 to 15 years per offense. So let's say you commit uh, a crime on a 100 claims going to Medicaid. Do the math. That's a long time, isn't it? You can spend a long time in prison. We start thinking about how bad that can get 
And, and I'm talking about the willful stuff. Now, obviously, you know, it goes down from there and they're not as, uh, uh, um, um, you know, hard on certain things with waste and, and certain things of abuse. But, you know, if you got somebody out there that just willingly committing fraud, people go to federal prison for that. We ought not be doing that. We shouldn't be defrauding each other. Yeah, it happens. We don't make that big of a deal out of it. We got to move on. Because the longer we hold on to it, the harder it is for us to talk to God. Why? Because it's bitterness. And God said that he will not hear if you have sin in your heart. You're holding on to it. He's not going to want to listen to it. You got something against somebody? God's going to be like, "Mm." you harbor sin in there? It's going to create a problem. It's going to create a big problem. You even know it goes over there and tells husband, you're not bitter against your wives. Why? Because it'll affect your prayer life. God's serious about this. So when God's talking about reconciliation, what he did on the cross to bring us all together, I, I'm convinced just by reading the word of God, he really meant it. Ephesians chapter 2, here he talks about this in some greater detail. And uh, jump down there to, um, oh, let's take a look at verse 11. He says, wherefore, remember that ye... Being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision, in the flesh made by hands. Basically saying that the Jews had no dealings with the Gentiles. At that time you were without Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning they didn't want them there. They thought them odd and strange. The strangers, excuse me, and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, Ye who sometimes were far uh, off made are made nigh by the blood of Christ. I will tell you this. This will make things a lot more difficult when it comes to the corrective action and you start changing the way you think. If every single time you think, is that going to offend somebody? Is that going to hurt somebody? Is that going to be something that's going to cause them to stumble? Is that going to be something that, that I'm going to have to stand in front of Jesus Christ and give an answer for? And the answer with that is, yes, you will. Why would you want to disparage the greatest sacrifice ever made on the cross of Calvary? But that's kind of what we do. If we just go about and we just say, well, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. When God brought us together through his shed blood. He says, for he is our peace. Our peace with God, right? And also our peace with each other. And I'm emphasizing this because I want to make sure this is very clear. Reconciliation cannot happen if Christ is not part of it. And it's just a show. It's a, it's a circus. People are jumping through hoops and people are pretending. That's all it is. For he is our peace who hath made both one. What is that? Jew and Gentile. And hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Praise God for that. Having abolished 
in his flesh the enmity, that which was holding us back, that, if you will, that violation, that enemy type mentality, even the law of commandments containing the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Well, what is he doing? That sacrifice that Jesus Christ did on the cross was to bring us all together. And this is why it gets really, 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 really intense sometimes when you've got disagreements with brothers and sisters in Christ. And the reason behind that is this, is because we're not talking about separating from what God has brought us together to do. I chopped my hand off. It's not going to do me much good. Recently went in surgery and had six inches of me taken off. That six inches, by the way, was plagued with infection and all sorts of stuff, right? Um, that part doesn't do much good to me. As a matter of fact, right now, it's just ash because it was put in an incinerator and burned. So I don't get it back. I want it back. I definitely don't want that thing back. So, you know, when we realize that when we start separating parts, we don't act as a body. We don't act as a body. This is why God wanted one mind all together, one body, as he talks about over in chapter 4, one, one one, one, one. You got, you got groups running around in these churches and calling themselves Baptists and they think that every single church is a body of Christ. How in the world can I have fellowship with them? You know, I can have fellowship with a believer all the way across the world. I can go to, uh, uh, and, and, and it's happened. It's happened. Believers that are from, you know, come over here that are from other countries and, and they just, they, they just, just, if you, if you will, understand the love of Christ and, and they love the brothers and sisters in Christ. And yeah, they're willing to look, overlook a lot of offense. Really truly are. And they're willing to be very forgiving. Why? Because they're going to endeavor to keep that bond. What sticks us together. Listening to the Holy Spirit. And he talks about that in chapter 4 of this. But, but, but the idea and the mentality that we look at here is that if God's brought us all together, reconciliation should be something that we seek. Matthew 5 makes it really clear. It's a brother. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yeah, we're all adopted. Yeah, we all may look a little funny. We don't look the same necessarily. But we're all together. One body. One body. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to take a look at verse 21. Actually, let's back up here just a little bit. 
Uh, it says that in verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him, that's Jesus Christ, should all fullness dwell. If you want to be complete, you'll find it in Jesus Christ and him and him alone. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or whether or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Wow. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. So here we have a picture of what God thinks that reconciliation should look like. We should be going and striving for this. Look at how much effort God put in to reconciling when we weren't even interested. Reconciliation is something that is very serious in God's eyes. It's not a process to be done lightly. And this is part of it. Reconciling is where, yeah, you go and you make that friendship, that relationship, that fellowship back where it should be. With brothers and sisters in Christ. Why is that? Because sin does not just affect you. Never has. Never will. Did that sin only affect Adam? No. Not even close. It affected what they're saying. There's almost 8 billion people on the face of the earth now. A lot of people. And those are the ones that are just alive right now. So let's talk about this other idea and this part of correction. Go over to Romans, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So here's where this correction process comes in. We've received the rebuke. We've got the reproof. The conviction's there. Confession has been done. The act of reconciliation with repentance and the restoration, the the consequences, the forgiveness, that's all there. Now we've got this subject of, okay, how do I change it? How do I change it? What do I do different? Because that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because what we did was unacceptable. We can't just say, okay, well, you get through those first five steps, all right, you're good, see you later. No, 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 no. Got to hit the brakes. Now we gotta correct it. Can't go in and you say you did a mechanic, oh, it's making a weird noise. And he goes in and takes a look at it and he goes, Oh yeah, well you're you know, your front end's about ready to fall off because of rust. And you go, Oh Okay, here's the money for the diagnostic, see you later. And expect everything to be fine. What do you have to do? You have to correct the problem. You have to fix it. So let's talk about fixing. Romans chapter 8 provides us the baseline of what we're supposed to be doing. And this is where we have to get, you know, we have to get serious when it comes to the change. 
We have to look at us, our lives and say, sin is sin. Sin is exceeding sinful. Sin disgusts God. It is an abomination to him. He hates it. He wants nothing to do with it. Therefore, neither should I. So what is it that I need to replace that sinful behavior with? A biblical, godly behavior. Take a look at Romans chapter 8 and take a look at verse 29. And it says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Now this isn't talking about, you know, Calvinism salvation, all right? Okay. Predestinate to do what? To be conformed to the image of his son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. So let's talk about that verse, verse 29. Because that verse is critical to the change process. God said that upon salvation, there is something that he has done for us. He predestinated that we should be conformed to the image of Christ. Now we know uh, from a spiritual standpoint that obviously we have forgiveness of sins. We understand that. But also at the same time, we have to understand that God has given us the Holy Spirit and his word to teach us and to guide us about how we are to be conformed. Now, this makes it very clear that our standard is Christ, what he did. If Christ wouldn't do it, neither should we. You remember for a while there, people were running around with that, what would Jesus do stuff? Yeah. You know, there's a little bit of truth behind that. Kind of got to a point of where it was a cliche and then made fun of and mocked, and now it's just, you know, out of, out of style. Well, Romans 8.29 does not go out of style. Romans 8.29 is timeless. Romans 8.29 is applicable from when it was written to today and from a hundred or a thousand years from now. All right? Why is that? He said he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. So we have an image, an example. Now, obviously, we can't be Christ because Christ is God. But our mannerisms, our behavior, our thoughts, our words, and our heart desires should match the pattern and example that Christ has set. And he said it throughout the entire word. Because people are going to say, oh, so you mean I only need to read the Gospels and now, no, 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 hold on a second. Because when you read the Gospels, you're going to have an issue when you get to John chapter 1. Why is that? Because what is Jesus Christ called by? The word. All of this is his word. So when we talk about conforming, we're talking about what's in here. The image, the expectation. What God wants us to do. His will. How we behave. And and, and there is no greater way of explaining it than, than when Jesus Christ came and he said, here, I'll give you an example. He said, I came to do my father's will. So what is it that we are supposed to be doing? We are here to do what we want to do, right? No. 
What will the world expects us to do? The patterns I see that are set forth on television. Because those are always great patterns to follow. No. As Christ came to do the will of the Father, the expectation is that we would come to do the will, or, the, or excuse me, that we would be here to do the will of the Father. But God wants. But God wants. You start going through the Bible and you start doing a, a quick search on the will of God, the will of the Lord, His will, all of those things uh, about will, and you find that there's uh, quite a few mentions of it, and it gets in a lot of detail about it. And a lot of it is not, uh, if you will, putting ourselves in a position of divining the future. A lot of it is not uh, having to uh, undo uh, the past because we can't do anything regarding you know, our sins. Jesus Christ took care of that. We can just come and confess and he forgives and praise God for that. But, but our present, people have this idea that the will of God is something in the future. The will of God is some, some mysterious thing that's out there and, you know, we've got to figure out some way of what it is. No, the will of God is do what God wants you to do right now. Right now. Here we are entering, entering into Thanksgiving. So 1 Thessalonians 5, right? What does he talk about? Thanksgiving. And what does he call it? The will of God. You cannot be in the will of God if you are not content where you're at. I'm like, well, that's tough. Jesus Christ was pretty content to not even have a house. He said, with food and raiment, therewith be content. That's all Christ had. You got a car? You need to be very thankful for that. You got a house? You need to be very thankful for that. You got things that you've afforded and that the Lord has allowed you to enjoy because of the fruit of your labor. You need to be very thankful for that. Those are things that you need to be thankful for. A person that is unthankful, a person that is malcontent, I guarantee you, wouldn't know the will of God if he walked up and slapped him in the head. Right. I'm not trying to be brutal about this, but, but, but there is the issue. So we have to realize what conforming looks like. You know, that word conform is a very interesting one because we have that word form in there. And, and it means that we are mirroring, modeling, and exemplifying a specific, if you will, attribute, example, You know, items sometimes when we're talking about conforming it to things, or in this case, Christ. Because here, here's what happens. You have a choice. You've got a choice. You can conform to the image of Christ, meaning that you're doing what Christ wants. You're, 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 you're doing the way that God wants it done in a, a biblical, godly manner. Not, not with worldly things, because you know I'm going to bring it up. Romans 12. <laughs> Turn there. Romans 12. 
Because here we have the other idea of conforming. In verse 2, and be not conformed to this world. So you got two choices. There's no middle ground. It's either you're going to conform to, to, to God or you're going to conform to that which is at enmity with God, the enemy of God, against God in every step of the way. There's no partial with this. You can't take and use sin to conform to Christ's image. God never used, Jesus Christ never used sin to do the will of God. Because if he did, he wouldn't be Christ. He wouldn't be God. So when we start talking about this conforming, he says there's another forming that has to happen, and this is the transforming. Talk a lot about trans today, don't we? Well, means moving from one thing to another. Well, you know, people are trying to use this and use that that, that word to, to 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 justify something else, which ought not be done, because that's not the way that God made, it's not the way that God did it. Okay, and, and it just shows you the conformity of the world, what the world conforms to, but we as ourselves, we need to transform. We need to be something different. We need to be different than the world. Not conform, excuse me, not conform to the world, but different than the world. As, as a believer, we look at it and we say, well, how am I going to do this? Okay. It starts off with the heart because he talks about it. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect. Oh, there it is again. Will of God. So here's what it comes down to. We always think our mind is up here, right? We want to think it's the brain. Well, the brain is, well, just a mass of cells, right? It's unique. It's very different. It's uh, one of the most complex things that man has ever run into. Uh, They can't, can't even come close to replicating it. You know, they talk about all this AI and stuff like that. Yeah, okay, well, when they can make something that can think autonomously on its own, that fits in a skull, then we'll talk. You see all those AIs, and what are they connected to? Connected to all these cables and wires and, you know, things, and there's servers upon servers upon servers and floors of servers and buildings of servers to make this thing think. Well, we've got it all packed up here in a very, very, very unique package. Much different than the animals. Animals don't think the way that we think. They don't have the ability to think that way. God didn't make them that way. So what God made us is he made us very unique with our minds. But I'm not talking about the brain. Because the mind exists in the soul. And the heart of man is not this fleshly heart that beats blood, but is in the heart. 
is, is in the soul of a man or a woman. It's in the soul. In the soul is the heart and the mind. And they're very difficult to separate. Why is that? Because the mind is part of the heart. Because the mind thinks and the heart thinks. He says, why do those thoughts arise in your heart? It's the seed of everything. Soul of a man and a woman is very interesting in that it has physical characteristics it looks like as the physical body. There's a lot of parallel. He talks about heart, a mind, bowels, all of it, right? There's, 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 there's some components there that look similar. But it is a very spiritual thing that God has created that is unique to you. And there has to be a transformation in the way that the heart thinks with its mind. It has to make some decisions. It has to make some choices. And the first choice that he says that needs to happen in this transformation process is you need to start by conforming to Christ. Christ said, I will do the will of the Father. The conforming to Christ is a transformation in our lives. That transformation then becomes, I want to do the will of God. Just as Christ did the will of God. There's our example. This is why the will of God is so important. This is why Paul said, I want you to grow in the will of God, the knowledge of his will. If you don't grow in the knowledge of his will, then you're not growing. Because his will is, is, is multifaceted. It talks about the way you think. It talks about the way you act. It talks about the way you behave. It talks about your attitude. It talks about um, your your your, um, your emotions. It talks about uh, you know uh, the thought processes. I mean, it talks about everything. The will of God is, is all encompassing, and we have to know how to grow. When we came out of the womb, we didn't just automatically just start knowing Shakespeare and start quoting it. To sleep, perchance to dream. We didn't, no. We didn't, we, we didn't come out like that. That's not how we, we were behaving. What did we have to be? We had to be taught. We had to grow in knowledge. We had to grow in maturity. We had to grow as a human being. At the same time, when we trust Christ as our Savior, there's a growth that God wants to see. And it mirrors some things in the physical world. But it is also very unique in that you can go backwards, which is not good. And that's often what happens when we realize we need to change. We need to get back to what we did. Like he told the church at Ephesus, you need to get back to your first love. You need to get back to that. You need to get back to the works that you were doing because you loved me. Not because... Whatever else. So we see that there's this conformity that God wants. And our example of change is going to be Christ. 
And that means that something is going to have to change. There is going to be a transformation. There's going to be a transformation. When you come out of the change that God is asking you to make, you should not appear the same way you entered into it. It should be different. It should be different. You shouldn't be doing the same actions. If you are, then somebody missed a step along the way. Something got overlooked. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about this because when we start talking about replacing, we, we this is a critical thing. We actually have to take and replace it. Put you know, put something else there. Because you can't just sweep the house and expect it to be okay. Because what does God say about that? In comes seven more devils, and he's worse off than he was before. So there always has to be something that replaces it in a biblical fashion. We're going to talk about discipline. Discipline is not what we think it is. We think of discipline, and we think of spanking, you know, little Johnny's bottom. Sorry, John. <laughs> you know, <clears throat> we think about that, right? Well, discipline is much more than that. Discipline is about making a disciple. Discipline is about being disciplined in your actions and your thoughts and your heart. Discipline is very different. It's not just punishment. It's not just punishment. And then we're also going to talk about the forsaking part. When you make that change and you conform and you transform, you're forsaking the world. You're forsaking the sin. You want nothing to do with it. You don't ever want to go back to it. You leave it. Should be gone. Should be dead. Mortifying the members. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and dismiss with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the time. Thank you again, Lord, for those that are here. Thank you again for what you teach us from your word. And Lord, it's a definitely a heavy, weighty subject matter as we start moving into correction because this is the meat and the, the bones of, of, of change in our life. And it's serious and it's weighty because Lord, you take it seriously. You took it seriously enough to, to die on the cross for us. You took it seriously enough to give us your word, to give us your Holy Spirit to give us fellow believers, to do all of this for us, then, Lord, we would be conformed to your image. I thank you again, Lord, for those that are here. I pray, Lord, you just take us home safely tonight. I pray, Lord, that as we gather tomorrow, with whether it's friends or family or just ourselves, that, Lord, we come together and we just realize how thankful we are. Think about all that we have. Not what we could have had, not what we think we should have, not what we lost, not necessarily what we gained, Lord, but to be thankful for you. Above all, Lord, not just the food, not just fellowship, but how great a God you really are to us. Lord, may we be extremely thankful for that. And I ask and I pray this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.